looking at any form of regulation for psychedelic therapy, um, that it it is absolutely needed. I said it earlier, but it is absolutely needed um, in order to be able to, to provide that comfort and quality of life because it's not just for the patient, it's for the family. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Mushroom Podcast. Today on the show, we have Michael Kidd. He is an independent consultant working with various psychedelic companies, helping them navigate the complex world of government relations. He has about 25 years experience working with government and private companies. And his story about why he is now working in psychedelics is the most interesting piece. So Michael and I both share the commonality of losing our mothers to aggressive cancer uh, earlier in our lives. And this is the driving force behind his work. And honestly, it's a huge force uh, for me doing this work as well, of helping as many people as possible gain access to psilocybin therapy for end-of-life distress. Michael even went as far as obtaining his mother's medical records during her illness to get a better understanding of what she experienced, and it helped him immensely in his healing journey. So this is a very personal conversation. I think it's a really important one. Um, and I really hope you guys get a lot of value out of this one and enjoy. All right, here we are. Michael Kidd, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I, I'm so excited for this conversation. Uh, I know we're going to dive deep into, into some pretty heavy issues that we have a, um, a similar experience, uh, life experience in, in dealing with. And so I just really appreciate you, you coming on to talk about this. And um, tell us a little bit about oh, your dog's already popped up. I love it. You'll pop yeah, in tell us a little. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is Clem, tell everybody. Us. Say hi to Clem. Clem. Yeah. Thanks for joining us too. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. But so, so you're currently working uh, in the psychedelic industry, and you got a history in um, media relations, government relations. Uh, yeah. Maybe a, a master of uh, relationship management. Would that be accurate <laughs> to say? I, I don't I wouldn't say I'm a master, but you know it's uh, um, maybe I'm the the a prof- maybe a new term I could call myself as a professional mutt. Um, <laughs> I've kind of done a lot of things uh, over the last 25 plus years, um, you know, and and I know we're going to get into this a bit more, Brett. But um, after my mother passed away in 1992, I was. Uh, I was kind of lost, so I, I needed to find something. And what I ended up doing was um, committing myself to a lot of volunteer work, and which led to uh, getting a, you know a, a job working in security of all things, um, and then uh, starting to rebuild my my life after that grief to knowing that I wanted to pursue post-secondary education. So I went to McMaster University, and um, I. I lucked out getting a job in uh, inpatient psychiatry and outpatient psychiatry at McMaster University Medical Center, which really spurred my, my uh, you know, my passion, my passion for understanding people, um, the things they do and why they do them. Uh, so, you know, I did that for, for like, likely five years and worked, uh, um, moved, to, moved to Nova Scotia in 2003 after I met my, uh, my wife and, um, and decided to pursue a, a degree in public relations. And then right from my, my degree, uh, finishing my degree, I ended up going right into politics and worked in politics for close to 15 years in public affairs and regulatory affairs and um, kind of the rest is history. But it's been a, it's been a, a real, real fun um, opportunity, professional opportunity to, to learn so much from so many good people um, and to take that skill set and apply it to what I'm doing today. Yeah. So in losing your mother back in 1992, um, what was it about like the loss of that relationship that drove you into like wanting to really understand people and work with people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I was, I was 17 at the time. So this was in, um, 1991. I was 17 at the time. I just turned 17, and I was very close with my mother. Um, she was she was 39 years old when she was diagnosed with uh, stage four metastatic uh, lung cancer, and um, we we were we were very close. Like 
she was tough. She was tough. And, you know, for those, for those who end up watching this, who may, who may know me, will probably be able to, to attest to that. But, um, you know, I played minor hockey at the, at a, at, at the AAA level and, and then into junior hockey. And she was at every game. She didn't miss, she didn't miss anything. So, you know, I think the, um, just the natural bond any son has with, with uh, their mother is a is a powerful powerful thing in understanding um, relationships as you grow. Um, whether that's with um, you know your partner, whether you have children of your own, uh, you learn so much from your mother. They're the primary caregivers from from birth right through, and especially in those primary um, uh, years of of brain development and overall. Um, uh, development uh, between the ages of you know birth and, and five years old so you know um, that's the that's the you know the thing that I'm really you know I think a lot about is you know her uh, her passing and how much it really made me want to um, get to know people and understand people and empathize with people who are either going through a, uh, a similar situation or just having a hard day and I think that's the that's the the lesson that I've I've learned and why I think her passing so many years ago, 30 years ago now, um, has been instrumental in helping me understand people. Right. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's probably the biggest loss we can go through of a close relationship in our life, right? Like that connection that everyone has uh, with their mother that just goes back to, you know, spending those nine months, those first nine months of your real existence inside yeah. of them and uh, I, they, something through the birthing process too, right? Like there is a, there's a crazy connection and, and this is something that I've worked with myself. I share with you my psychedelic experience too of uh, my intention, meaning on uh, the relationship, exploring the relationship with my mom who passed away when I was 25. So not long after uh, the age that you experienced that same loss. And you can really feel it in a psychedelic experience, that connection back to uh, the roots, right? Of like where the origination of, you know, us as human beings began. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I haven't, um, I haven't gone on my journey yet. Um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that trauma is still very, very um, entrenched in, in who I am as a person. There's anger, there's still grief. Um, a lot of that has subsided, but, you know, it, it comes, it comes and goes still because, you know, for example, I'll be at, you know, my son or my daughter's hockey game and, uh, you know, I'll look over at the stands and I knew, I would know just instinctively where my mother would be sitting, where my father would be sitting. And, and it, it brings you back to that moment of when they used to be there for you, they sacrificed everything for you. Uh, and my mother did. She sacrificed everything so that I could have a decent upbringing for the years that, that we were connected. As you said, you know, in utero right through to birth and, mm. you know, the 17 years after. But um, so, yeah, we I think there's there's always part of us that as much as we deal with the trauma of losing someone um, like our mothers, um, there's... Uh, you know, there's the ability to always reflect and introspectively look at, you know, how much they influenced your lives in all the years that go by without them. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so now your, your current work, uh, with, uh, as a consultant relations consultant with, uh, various psychedelic companies that you're now working with. Um, one big focus I think you shared with me is, uh, working with companies with a focus on end of life anxiety, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the reason, Brett, why, why I pivoted my business almost two years ago, uh, right into this space. Um, I had, I had known nothing about psychedelics other than, um, consuming psilocybin mushrooms once when I was 19. And <laughs> that's a funny story. I, I was at my friend's party and mm -hmm. I actually thought I was a hamster. I, I ran <laughs> I ran upstairs and um, these were the days of the parties where everybody would come in with their jackets on and throw them into bedrooms. So there was about 40 or 50 jackets on the bed and I was pretending that it was a nest. So anyways, that's, uh, that was my, my only experience I've had with psilocybin. Um, but 
you know, now, now that I've learned so much more about uh, the therapeutic impact that it has mm. in treating uh, end-of-life distress, uh, palliative discomfort, all these different things that are so organically emotional. Because mm -hmm. um, often when we think of end-of-life, we think of the pain, the physical pain that, that people suffer, and they do. I, yeah. I've seen it with, with my friends, I've seen it with my mother, I've seen it with all of my family. Um, but, you know, I think we've also, as a society, done a great job over the last decade of really putting an emphasis on mental health. And that is where I think, you know, psychedelics, and I think I speak for a lot of people, uh, will have a profound and deep impact on how we move forward in that therapy to help the mind and heal the mind, even as we're passing through uh, to the end of our journeys. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've had a few conversations now with people. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's, uh, they're tough conversations to have and listen to, right? When been through the experience that we've both been through of watching both of our mothers just being taken away really quickly and being gripped with, with fear and anxiety and just not really knowing what's coming next, not knowing what to do, how to act in those last few months when you're like facing your mortality. Uh, and uh, it's, the, it's that same story. People learn how to live. If they only have a couple months left or weeks or whatever it is, they, they all of a sudden have this perspective of, of how they want to share their, their time with people and the anxiety and stress melts away. And it's, it's an incredible thing to watch someone go through. And uh, yeah. I know that we both share this, right? As like, because we went through that and we, we saw the other side of it where there wasn't the option for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy for end of life distress. Like we want to fight to have people have access to that when they need it, especially ourselves. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's the, um, for me, that's always been my catalyst or my um, motivation is to, is to be a, a steward, to be an ambassador of some sort. I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm not a, a, um, a psychedelic researcher. You'll never see me in a science lab <laughs> building compounds or trying to isolate, isolate different compounds. But, you know, I think the skills that I have outside of the scientific realm, which are so important, um, are good communication skills and the ability to bring the right people to the to the table to have discussions with say health canada with the health minister and different territorial provincial or even state governments um as i've been able to do over the last year and a half so you know i think we're we're kind of at that that point in time where um people are asking more questions about psychedelics and and understanding more i've always said that those who are suffering end-of-life anxiety uh, and palliative anxiety certainly deserve to have that peace. There's absolutely no reason in the world that those who are facing primordial dread and fear should not have access to psilocybin therapy. There's no reason for it. And I believe, I know Health Canada knows that. I know there are a lot of people who work at Health Canada who are very passionate about this and they get it and they understand it um but these things do take time and and that's the that's the the part where i think my skill set helps is helping others who are suffering understand that um while they may not have all that time um we have to continue to fight and and put this into perspective so that everybody understands from the political side right through to the to the actual social side yeah. And, you know, you're, you're honest about your experience too. Like you haven't gone through a psilocybin aside from your, your one session session <laughs> experience, let's call, we'll call it, it or you turn into a hamster. Yeah. My, my first session. Um, <laughs> no, but I, and, and I will be, I will be going through, um, yeah. that in, in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm very excited for it. One of the reasons I, I have held off is because I am on escitalopram. And um, that is, again, related to post-traumatic stress that I've had since my mother's death. I haven't slept in close to 30 years, um, meaning that I've, 
I, I, I developed a, um, what you call hypnagogic hallucinations and a parasomnia. And what that has done for my sleep is it's affected everything um, going forward, my ability to get up in the morning, my ability to work and concentrate and focus. When you're not sleeping, you're not really productive. I don't care who you are. It's just how we are. We're, 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 we're human, and that's just how it es. Um, so I've struggled with that, but escitalopram um, uh, did help me relieve some of that anxiety and that stress, no question. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to be on pharmaceuticals the rest of my life. Um, so I'm willing to try something different, and I think psychedelics has given me that hope to, to experiment and try and to build therapy into that routine so that I could benefit from a more natural and holistic way. That's, that's awesome. Man. And, and you know what, Brett, if, if it doesn't, if it doesn't work, if I say I do a microdosing routine and regimen, if it doesn't work, then that's fine. That's fine. That's, that's the, I think the difference we're trying to explain to people is this isn't just an all out replacement of, you know, pharmaceuticals and in, in, in that context, what we're saying is let's have an option. Let's, if we have plant-based options that could potentially heal and help, then we have an obligation to give those a proper, uh, a proper, uh, uh, routine and try. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And you know, we've already done it in Canada here with, uh, with CBD, right? Like there's a lot of people taking CBD for right. sleep disorders, anxiety. So, uh, let's just, let's put, let's keep putting more options on the table. That's yeah. all it is. It's not a, it's not a cure-all. It's not a magic drug. I mean, it is a magic drug because <laughs> yeah. I've been there and I've seen the magic, but, yeah. um, it's not, it's not like, um, yeah, it's not a guarantee that like you do one psilocybin therapy session and you're good. There's a lot more that comes with it. It actually, it's a lot more work than just doing, um, something like an SSRI, right? Yeah. SSRI helps suppress and, and manage some of those very difficult, uh, emotions that are coming up, but it doesn't get to the root of solving why they're there in the first place. So, no, it doesn't. And, you know, again, this is where I think we have an obligation as, as a society to, um, if we're going to talk about psychedelics and their healing potential, then we also have to talk about accessibility because there are going to be millions of people throughout this world who could benefit from these treatments, but aren't going to be able to, um, afford the treatments that, that could, that could help them. And, so I think that's a, a you know, even, even in, in, in my world, um, I don't have a benefit plan. I don't have five, six, seven hundred dollars to, to spend um, through an insurance plan on a, a psychologist or a counseling therapist. So that all comes out of pocket. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are ways that I think there's a lot of work that has to be done in that space to help the right people who, who need it most. And, you know, I think in the, you're looking at this generation of children who are going to be who are already severely impacted by COVID, and what that's going to do to their future growth and development. You know, we're good, we 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 may never know, but it's going to, in the in the generations to come, have a severe impact. Yeah, we're all fundamentally changed after this two-year experience of what we've been dealing with, right? And like the right. you know, it's, it has been realized yet what the impact is, but we just know that there, there is a, a significant impact and we're going to need alternative tools to help us through, you know, right. something as like a, a collective trauma that we've all kind of been through here. Um, so one thing you shared with me before, which, uh, I, I found to be incredible and I'm, I'm excited to do this myself is, um, in kind of trying to get to the root of figuring out your own anxiety and PTSD yeah. around losing your mother. You actually went to uh, the hospital where she was in palliative care and you got her medical records, which is, I would have never yeah. thought to do that. <laughs> and I really want to, because to help me understand, yeah. you know, just beyond what she was telling us yeah. in those last uh, couple months, I want to see like what she was actually like off the cuff, the stuff that she didn't feel comfortable to share with her family, maybe too dark, yeah. too scary. So tell me, yeah. tell me about what you discovered there. Um, the day she died in, on February 8th, 1992, I always knew that I wanted to tell that story. Um, I wanted to share that story with 
with boys, with young men. Um, even more today, I think boys need to understand how important their relationships are with their mothers. Um, with respect to, to understanding the complexities that we all face um, on an emotional um, and psychological level. So um, I always knew I was going to tell that story. And so in 2011, I had written, I'd called um, the hospital where my mother was, uh, had gone through her final, um, well, through her diagnosis right through to the, to the end. Um, and I, I, I actually ordered her, her medical records, uh, her health records from the hospital and, and they, they gave them to me. I mean, it's freedom of, of information and access, um, because I'm a family member. So I could not just call up and say, Hey, can I see Brett's mother's, uh, records? Uh, that's illegal. But, um, so I received a package a couple of weeks after. Remember, it cost me $92 to access them because they had to print off all the papers, but it was certainly worth it. And, you know, to this day, and I was just looking at them again last night, to this day, it is probably the single most cathartic um, therapeutic thing I've ever done is to go back in time and really understand what was going through her mind what was going through my father's mind, what was going through my mind, because I'm documented in those papers. And more importantly, how are the healthcare professionals around her treating her? What were they saying? Were they talking about her as just another patient or was there empathy and compassion written in those notes? And I needed to see all of that. And every time I, I look at those records, it again is a, a just such an uplifting experience. So um, I, I plan to share those actually, and I plan to turn them into art, um, into an art display and exhibit down the road. I think, uh, I think the power of understanding grief and loss is really by going back and, and living in that moment and, and having a, a, a broader perspective of how it impact, how it has impacted our own lives. And, so I, I, can't, I can't say enough about, for those who really want to heal, get those records, learn, and, and understand where your parent, your mother, your father, whoever um, was going through, what they were going through at that time in, 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 in history. And um, you'll come away sad, you'll come away maybe a little angry, but you'll feel better. And, and, I, and, I, and I know that because I've done it. So. Very powerful. Some of the stuff that was written, um, you know, you know, the day the day she was diagnosed, it was um, the twenty sixth of of July, nineteen ninety one, and this this happened. So within a month, she she got really sick in June. Went back and forth with her doctor, and then she just couldn't. She couldn't even. She couldn't even lay down because the pressure was so bad and her face had swelled up. And we had just been up to our property up north, uh, northern Ontario. We thought maybe she had been bitten by a, um, a black fly or she had an allergic reaction to something. But she knew something was wrong. She knew. And so the day that she died, or sorry, the day that she was diagnosed, you know, is one that... It's it's hard to explain because because for those who are who are listening will will understand it and for those who who um, who've gone through that experience will understand. But uh, I I just I remember when she told me what was going to happen and how devastating that was. But to see it actually written on paper that when the doctor says you know informed Mrs. Kid of terminal C. Um, her concern was, how am I going to tell my children? And, you know, that's a, that says a lot about a person and their, their character when they know they're going to die. They've been handed a life sentence. They've been handed, you know, um, uh, just a, uh, been handed a, a time for them to go. Sorry, it's a bit emotional for me, yeah. but, um, 
and the only thing they can think of is how am I going to tell my children? How are my children going to handle this? Um, so, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's a tough thing, and yeah, it's tough. Yeah, and I mean, I just want to share with you that I can I can resonate uh, to that from my experience as well. Uh, I think the stuff that I've worked through recently <clears throat> in losing my mom and revisiting that experience uh, is feeling a lot of guilt of like, was I a good son? Did I do enough for her? You know, like, was I there for her? Did she know how much I loved her? Yeah. And um, to hear you say that, and the first thing that she thought about was, how am I going to tell my kids? It goes right. to show how much she like deeply loves and cares about you. So I can see the therapy of just being able to read that and know that like, wow, I was the first thing that she thought about, like, you know, because <laughs> uh, that's yeah, something I've dealt it's... with a lot is like, how, did she know how much, like, did I tell her enough? Did I, did yeah. I share that love authentically with her? Could she feel yeah. it? So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who say, oh yeah, she knew, she knew, like, like, don't worry. She knew, Brett. She knew that 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 you loved her. Of course, of course, she she knew that. My mother knew that. Your mother knew that. But <laughs> my uncle. I have an uncle who, back in in the late '80s and early '90s, who um, got really obsessed with the old cam. Remember the big camcorders you put on your shoulders, and you're too young to remember. But but I I'm I'm almost movies. 48, so I do. <laughs> But, you know, he went through uh, a period where he was documenting everything. And he's done a fantastic job documenting um, my entire family's uh, uh, genealogy and history. But um, October 15, October 14th, 1991 was Thanksgiving Day. And my uncle had taken a camp, the camcorder, put it on a tripod and set it up at the end of a long table we had in our rec room and hit play. None of us knew that that camera was on. Mm. I, I didn't even know there was a camera there recording. Fly on the wall. Hours awesome. of us just having our last Thanksgiving dinner together. Mm. And it was, it, my, both of my sets with my grandparents were there, my father, my sister, myself, my cousin and her uh, fiance at the time. And it was, it was absolutely powerful and still is to go back and watch the sadness in the room. Um, you know, it's something I wish I could show to a health minister, to, um, to government, to, to other advocates to say, this is exactly what it does to a family. When someone is dying and they are, they are giving up that quality of life because they're so depressed and so sad and so much pain. But we have something that might be able to turn that dinner into something a little more happier, something that could really bring the family together as opposed to nobody addressing the elephant in the room. And that's what it's always felt like. I watched my 17-year-old self walking back and forth, just not even acknowledging the situation because I was in such a stage of denial and grief that I refused to acknowledge it. So, you know, it's, it's amazing to really think back and reflect on how much pain is involved and the, the, the unilateral destruction the, of, of the nuclear family when you are dealing with a, a cancer diagnosis that is not going to end well. So I, I would argue that if we are looking at any form of regulation for psychedelic therapy, um, that it, it is absolutely needed, and I said it earlier, but it is absolutely needed um, in order to be able to, to provide that comfort and quality of life because it's not just for the patient, it's for the family as well because we carry that grief you know, decades after, and we pass that on to our children. There's, there's so much destruction that comes from that. And there's a lot of love. There's a lot of love that happens too. But I do, I believe to the core of my soul that 
psychedelic therapy, psilocybin therapy especially, um, is, is, a, is, a, is a panacea to um, really ending some of that pain that could be passed on through successive generations. Yeah. Yeah, I talk about the ripple effect a lot, right? So it's, and you have no idea, like whether it's negative or positive, really like what the impact is. Um, you can project, maybe hypothesize, if someone is carrying a severe amount of trauma and anxiety that, you know, like you said, there's all these, you know, there's silver linings that we carry as well, right? And, you know, we're able to talk about this stuff and, and help people, but some people get so locked up through it traumatic episode like that that it just destroys their life and potentially anybody's life that they're in contact with so to not have this option it's like what is the ripple effect going out into the world of people carrying this trauma that it's it's just so unnecessary with through one or two sessions of psilocybin therapy and some proper integration um, and then family conversations that you could mitigate so much damage right and like what's <laughs> I guess like the crazy question is like, what's the risk when you look at the safety profile of, of psilocybin? Right. There's some risk, but it is so incredibly low for like what there is to gain. And the science and the science speaks to that. That's the, you know, in the conversations I've had with, with government officials, um, whether political or in the, on the, on the bureaucratic side, um, they get that. They understand that. Um, the, the question is a, one of policy and how far we can push that Overton window to, for public exception and um, really understanding and integrating that policy into the broader mainstream. And the fact is there's still a lot of stigma around it. I get that from a communications angle and a pure societal health economics angle. But, you know, at the same time, if we have something that has shown, um, you know, very, uh, very, very low risk for diversion and harm, um, you know, people have said, well, you know, give, let people who are um, wanting to access medical assistance and dying here in Canada, um, let them, you know, try, let, give, give them psilocybin. Well, yes, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't, I don't think we should just give it to them because they're dying and you know, here you go, you're dying anyway. So let's, uh, let's see how it works. How do you feel? No, we're, they're not Guinea pigs. They're, we don't treat people like that. But what we do have is an obligation to say, you're facing this situation. Um, a lot of the science already shows what you're probably feeling. We know that. Would you be interested? Would you help us by fighting for this cause so that, so that we can pass that information on and help other people as we move forward? And you know what? I've met a lot of palliative and end-of-life patients a lot over just this past year, but also throughout my life. And I can tell you every single one of them would say yes and have said yes. Wow. And to me, that is a, it's, it, that's a game changer. We have to be you know, willing to continue to hammer that argument home with government that this isn't about diversion. This is about harm mitigation and, and, and taking away that risk. And the science already shows it. Um, we don't need a thousand more clinical trials. What we need is more evidence, whether that's anecdotal or, or more science. We do have to certainly invest in clinical trials 100%, but we also have to be able to to, to, to stand up and say, we already know what these, the, the positive impacts that are associated with these medicines. So let's do this. I think Health Canada is listening. I think we will see some significant change in the near future, but we're all still learning. You have to understand we're in difficult and strange times. Um, there's politically, you could argue that, that Canadians are so divided right now um, Americans are divided, societies are divided. Yeah. So, you know, we have to navigate through a lot of that infrastructure before we can really, really pinpoint, you know, which policy will have the broadest and safest impact moving forward. Yeah. So when you say, when, you, when you're talking to uh, Health Canada officials and you're talking about this isn't diversion, 
by that do you mean like we're not trying to find an alternative solution that's going to replace the current uh medical system you're, you're, is that what you're saying by diversion well it's part of it so diversion is where um the concern is if if we put psilocybin into um the hands of individuals through some form of regulated access that um those drugs could turn into uh escalated recreational use um or you know f um, feeding the black or gray markets so um leading to potentially as a gateway to other drugs. None of that's true. None of that's true with psilocybin mm. or MDMA for that matter. Like it's, none it's, of that is true. Yeah. Um, it's if the, anything, is, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Go, uh, I just, if, if anything, if anything, and, and, and I've had the privilege of, of being on calls with Paul Stamets talking about, and Pam Crisco, Dr. Pam Crisco talking about safe supply and how if we don't do something on the, legal controlled and regulated side to put these medicines into the hands of 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 palliative and end-of-life patients through a proper regulated framework then we're going to continue to see this black market expansion especially as pop culture and media expand we're going to more people learn about psilocybin and and these and, and these modalities and these therapies they're going to be curious. And as Paul Stamets so brilliantly said a few weeks ago on a call that I was on with him, is you're going to find someone who wants to forage and they will go into a forest and they will pick a mushroom that they think is psilocybin and they will consume that mushroom and get very, very sick or potentially die. Then we have a problem. Then we have a problem, especially if that stuff starts to circulate on the black market. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just comes back to education and access. And, and what I was going to say there too, is like, it's, it sounds like it's that, that same faulty thinking that, um, has been used for so long in the war on it drugs, is. right? It's just like a deep insecurity and fear that if we like let the beast out of the cage, like it's going to be havoc. And it's like, well, right. we already have havoc. Like the, it's, it's like an yeah. ignorance to the current reality that everybody uses drugs Everybody wants to get their hands on drugs. And right. if they don't have a safe access or method of doing that from a trusted source, the risk goes through the roof, yeah. right? So, yeah, I don't know when that, that, that shift is going to happen where we need to get out of that paradigm of, of war on drugs thinking and mentality. But like, it's very clear, I, don't think, I well, think, to most people. It's, it hasn't worked. It's not yeah, working. Yeah, I don't... It, it, and look, I don't think will ever see a full shift on the war on drugs. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's the best thing. Like I, I think we have to be careful. I'm not, uh, I'm not one to propose, um, hey, let's just, let's just legalize drugs. Decriminalization is a whole different matter. I think what the war on drugs has done is it has definitely marginalized vulnerable populations and, and look for mass incarceration of by race and you look at a lot of that stuff and the and the socioeconomic data there is clear as day what the war on drugs has caused um you know but at the same time you know we have to be careful what, with what we are consuming which again why is why it's so important to have a a legally controlled uh product that is grown within the country that is produced and supplied within the country under GMP certified standards that everybody can embrace and and learn from and grow data from so that we can all heal together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's, I mean, just in the, the psychedelic side right now, there's a lot of microdosing companies popping up. All over that, the place. That yeah. are just, just, just doing it. And, you know, they're, they're growing this stuff in their closet and then they're making it in their kitchen and it's... <laughs> You know, it is. And, it's and, not the most and, comforting thing to, to ingest. Yeah, I get I must get 10 requests a day on, on Twitter um, wow. from people. Hey, you know, do you want to you want to buy? And I'm like, guys, like, <laughs> come on. It's it's not uh, I, I get what you're doing, but it just doesn't work that way for me. So, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, we got to we got to put some put some structures in place so that, yeah. you know, because, you know, entrepreneurs are going to entrepreneur 
right? They see an opportunity, oh, of course. right? They're going to go for it. And, uh, and that's great, but let's give them a structure and a framework to work through. Um, it's going to slow them down, obviously, but again, it's about mitigating risk. So I'm all for that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about the, the relations side, government relations and how you're having these conversations, weed's been legal for four years now in Canada, almost three and a half, I think, right? I believe it was October 2018. So what data do we have there? Do, do you know anything? Can you speak to that? Because that's to me is like, are all of these fears about um, decriminalizing psychedelics? Yeah. If we have three and a half years of data now of decriminalizing, legalizing marijuana for medical and recreational use, yeah. what's the story telling us there and how can we use that for psychedelics? Well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have the data. Um, but what I can tell you though, is, um, as we venture into, into regulatory territory with psychedelics, a lot of people are looking at the, the processes that were put in place through, um, the legalization of medicinal cannabis from 2515 to 2018 sorry, 2015 to 2018. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, people point the finger back to that specific time because, you know, when, when true Justin Trudeau came in and, and promised that in the 2015 election that he would legalize cannabis, you know, everybody got excited. It was recreational. This is, this is progressive. This is, this is the right time. And, and, Maybe it, maybe it was, maybe it was, it's not, you know, for me, um, to, to, to really speculate on that. But what I can tell you is that a lot of people in the medical research side of cannabis had a very difficult time because they felt that the research still wasn't there, that we need, there was so much more work that needed to be done that still to this day needs to be done. Um, so they were forgotten. And, and the, the focus, the focal point became about, you know, getting it into stores as a, as a retail option so that consumers can, can, can purchase the product and government can make its, its money off taxation. Like it's, it's a classic supply and demand economic issue with, um, but, but it, it kind of ran over what the purpose for a lot of the advocacy work over the last hundred years in this country and other countries around cannabis legislation is, you know, that it's, it's, it's to be used for medicinal purposes and the power of what that drug can actually do to help those. Ask veterans today who consume enormous amounts of cannabis, CBD, uh, about how it's affecting them. And, you know, a lot will tell you that it's been powerful. But what, what's happened with psychedelics is, is that we're taking our time. Yes, we want some form of regulated access, but we're taking our time because, because we don't want to make those mistakes, the same mistakes that were made. We don't want to forego the research. So one of the things that I do in my conversations with Health Canada and with my clients who, um, who are working on clinical trials as we speak and building GMP compliant facilities um, is helping under, helping Health Canada understand that you know, we're not going to go down that road. This is, psychedelics are different. Doctors were kind of blindsided with cannabis. We're working to educate more doctors today. That's why I thought the special access program was a really, really good move from Health Canada, not just because of the supply and being able to get more patients access, but because it's an opportunity to further educate physicians and clinicians and other practitioners on why psychedelic therapy is important. Mm -hmm. So we're taking our time. Um, it's a bit of give and take, but I think there's, we've come to that point now where if we can ensure that the doctors understand um, that, that Health Canada understands that we're still very much committed to clinical trials and research to further develop psilocybin as a as a um, as a really good therapeutic modality then everybody's going to be better off what you're seeing now today though brett is and i've talked to if you talk to someone like robert la prairie who's probably one of the the best 
cannabis researchers in the country out of the University of Saskatchewan. Um, he had a lot to do with the current um, cannabis regulations, especially on the MMPR, so the med medicinal side. Um, he, he will tell you that it's actually kind of cycled back now where government is now saying, yeah, you know what, we need to invest more money into medicinal cannabis and really understanding that. So there's more attention being paid to it. Everyone seems to look at cannabis and says, oh, look at the stock values of complaints. It stinks. Nobody's, you know, they're pulling all their capital out. It was speculative to begin with. But, but that's, that's business. That's economics. That's, that's okay. Where for those who really care about healing, um, it's nice to see some of that money going back into research because that is critical for the longevity and sustainab uh, sustainability of any of these drugs and compounds as we move forward. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I never really thought about thought about it in that light with cannabis of the the mistakes that were made of of speeding through the the medicalization of cannabis and trying to get to the the recreational you know tax revenue generating side of it and. Uh, and, yeah, I understand that now. That's that's an interesting perspective. Uh, I really want to talk to Robert LaPrairie as well to get his thoughts on. Yeah, uh, happy to happy to make that introduction for you. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, because yeah. one, I mean, one question. I'm I'm not a big consumer of, of cannabis. I have a THC tincture that I take a little bit and some CBD products. Yeah. Um, but one thing I have had a lot of conversations. I just had a conversation with a friend on the on the weekend, and he took. Uh, you know, I took 50 milligrams of a THC gummy and it just like put him into a state of dread and psychosis for six hours straight. Right. And like, that's a common story that we've all had. So it's like, I think we did miss the, uh, the education yeah. and the, uh, specifically with ingesting THC because yeah. it's a whole different beast for people. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, he even told me his, his wife had to call, uh, you know, call the emergency line because, like, he thought he was going to die, right? And yeah. and they're kind of laughing about it on the other side because it's such a common phone call that they get of people yeah. overdosing on on THC edibles, right? So well, it, it's funny. I so prior to May of two thousand nineteen, I'd never touched cannabis, mm -hmm. and I was, um, you know, I can't give specific details, but I was in Ottawa uh, on business. And my client at the time, we were taking an Uber back to the airport. Um, she was going to one part of the country. I was coming back to Halifax. And um, she said, you want a piece of chocolate? And I said, sure. Is it an edible? She said, yeah. I said, you know what? Absolutely. I, I, I've never done this before, but I want to try it. So I took one and I'm in the front seat and everything's good. And I looked back and said, nothing's happening. Give me another one. She said, no, 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 you don't want another one. I said, yes, I demanded it. She gave me one. And by the time I picked my bag up and walked into the terminal, um, it was over. It was no. over. I, I sat in that terminal. I missed my flight. She missed her flight. And I laughed for two hours straight. <laughs> but when I did, when I did finally get my flight figured out hours later, um, that's when, that's when, if it was just, I went from a complete euphoria to utter dread. It was, it was a horrible feeling. So anyways, that was my first experience as well. And, uh, um, but yeah, you learn, right? You learn. And unfortunately, a lot of people are learning the hard way with THC edibles. <laughs> well, and I think yeah. that's the, it, it, again, to go back to psychedelics and diversion, I, I, that is a concern, That's, and it's a legitimate concern. I've spoken with a lot of, especially on the conservative side, I've spoken to a lot of conservative politicians who have said, um, we're concerned that these drugs will end up in the wrong hands and, and, and people will abuse any type of regulated access. And again, we, you know, we, we can only explain the science as much as we know it. And we, need, we definitely need to have more science. We know there's no risk of diversion, but but we still need to continue to push that narrative forward and that message forward because it's so important. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, I think, I think back to my mom and, you know, when she was diagnosed and I, I remember she asked her, 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 our family doctor, you know, what, what, is there anything on the alternative? Like, 
is there an alternative therapy? Because everybody always uses that that term, right? What can I can I go to Mexico? Can I go to Jamaica? Is there something experimental? And the, the, I mean, we wouldn't have had the money to do it anyway. There was there was no GoFundMe back then, right? Right. Um, so the doctor handed her a pe- a, a, a bottle of green pills, and just mm-hmm. said, "These are greens. They're probably not going to help you, but just you know." I think it was more of a psychological trick than anything. Were they so, you know, or were they? Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough because I'd love to it's that old question of if you could go back in time to do anything. You know, you'd want to have that one hour, that one minute with someone that you lost. And I would. I'd go back to my mom and there's a lot of things that I'd say, a lot of things I would have done different. You know, kind of like what you said earlier. You know, was I was I there? Was I did I do enough? And I asked those questions of myself, you know, every single day. Um, but you know, at the at the end of the day, I'll tell you this. Um, I would. I would be. Uh, it it was it was so traumatic, to be a seventeen year old boy waking up uh, every morning to get ready for school and to walk out of your room and head towards the kitchen and, you know, peripherally, you could kind of see around the kitchen into our living room. We had a big bay window there. And I would always see a little bit of commotion, just a little bit of movement, and I'd just peek my head around the corner and and I'd see my mom sitting in her rocking chair. I was in her house coat. She had lost her hair. And she'd be in that rocking chair, just slowly going back and forth and looking out at the sunrise. And the one regret I have is that I never walked up behind her and just talked to her and said, hey, tell me how you're feeling. What's going on? Um, that's a regret I have, but at the same time, I already knew what she was thinking and I wanted to give her those moments to herself that she was probably trying to answer a lot of questions. Was she talking to God? Was she talking to, I don't know, like it's, it's, it's one of those life's mysterious things that you never ever get to know, but um, so you, again, you think back to how psychedelics could have potentially been, um, a, you know, instead of there being a barrier of communication in our household, um, maybe psychedelics could have helped dissolve that a little bit and brought us closer to understand exactly what she was feeling. We know what somebody you know, somebody who's dying, what they're, what they're feeling. We, fit, we could feel that anxiety, mm-hmm. but it's the empathy. It's the understanding that this is going to happen and we have to work together as a family and as friends to help one another. And to me, that's the most powerful thing about having, having lost a, a mother so young is to... to to now be able to to take that and meet with different palliative patients and end of life patients and fight every morning that I get up now and fight for them to get access whether that whether they believe in it or not um, to give them that choice that right to be able to open up their feelings and communicate on a level that they may have never ever or would have never experienced with their family as they pass off into um, at the end of their journeys. So to me, that's the most powerful thing and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Man, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's everything. We all just want to be able to feel comfortable to open up to the people that matter most to us, right? And uh, psychedelics are an incredible gateway to allow that to happen. They are. <laughs> um, I say this as a guy who's... You know, once thought he was a hamster, but uh, um, I I do. I wish, you know, I think, and I, you know, I think back to my father 
you know, the impact, it, 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 the, the grief and despair could have saved him. Mm-hmm. You know, my father, my mother was the rock, probably much like you, Brett. My mother was the rock of our family. She 100%. was the boss. <laughs> she was the boss. And, and we knew that. Everybody, she had, you know, five sisters, three brothers. Um, everyone knew that my mom was the boss. We're talking about a lady who, my goodness, it's probably good she's not around for minor hockey these days because she would start brawls in stands. Um, but she had the love and respect of every, everybody. Like, didn't matter. She would, we were 10 years old watching our parents in a full-out brawl and stands. And, it, it, and yet people, people still loved her because she was a little tough Italian lady, right? And <laughs> yeah. she fought hard. She fought hard. I just wish we, you know, we could have given her something more to really understand and deal with her grief yeah. uh, a, lot, a lot better. Yeah. It's like having that, being able to open that door to help her too, right? Yeah, that's that's the big thing. Is like you, you feel so helpless when something like that happens. I remember you know what? Like, there's I... nothing like I can do. Like I just felt, I felt in my own prison as well. Right? It's yeah. like I want to fix this. I want to make her pain and suffering go away. And talking to a lot of different people, started educating myself and found some alternative stuff about. Um, like diet shifts and meditation and stuff, which we tried, but it was like, it just didn't seem like we were, we were getting there, you know, uh, we weren't getting breakthroughs and uh, yeah, it's just, everyone just kind of locked up and it was like, well, all the doctors are just telling us that yeah, it's over and you know, it's, 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 you know, we like to speak in months instead of years. And then it was like, we like to speak in weeks instead of months. Yeah. And it was just like the everything was just closing, closing in on us, and no one, yeah. no one knew what to do. Yeah, I, I remember that well, my friend. Um, you know, I'll, I'll share one last story with you here. Yeah, yeah. I, I was uh, I was playing junior hockey, and um, as I said, my mom never missed any of my hockey games. She did when she was sick, and um, which you know it is what it is. But um, she had uh, my dad had brought her up to my game, and. Um, he pushed her in with the wheelchair and I remember everybody kind of just went quiet because you know I was uh, we were losing 3-1 I was a goalie we were losing 3-1 and I just remember looking up to my left and seeing my dad wheel her in and everybody was quiet and he brought her over and 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 uh, and then the play had resumed and you know about an hour later you know she could only handle so much so she had to go home and you know, I remember Everything, everybody in the rink was quiet. Probably, you know, five, six hundred fans in the in the rink at the time. And I, I remember my dad saying, "Okay, Marion, to my mom, you know, say bye to Michael." And I remember looking up, and she mouthed the word. She was so weak at this time. She, you know, she said, "You know, bye, Michael," like that to me. And and I remember I just broke down on the ice. And uh, the boys came back and, and we won 5-3. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing because when I went home that night, um, I walked in and, and I, my dad said, hey, how'd you guys make out? I said, we ended up winning. And I said, how's mom? He said, you know, she doesn't have much. She doesn't have much to go, right? Longer to go. I said, yeah, I saw it tonight, dad. He said, why don't you go in there and lay down with her and just let her know that you're there? And, you know, <clears throat> it was, it was um, other than a, having access to her health records, it was my way to start to break free from some of that grief and denial because I laid there and I just, I remember rubbing her back and she was coherent. She was in a lot of pain and we just talked for a bit and she fell asleep. And I knew at that moment, after an hour or so, after she fell asleep, when I walked out, I knew it wouldn't be long after that. And she was gone within a few days. And so, you know, I think that's the, the key is that we, you know, I think where, where psychedelics could potentially help is break, making those moments a lot more powerful. And 
giving us that opportunity for clarity and empathy and just just walking everybody to the end together as opposed to letting someone go and telling them we hope to see you again yeah. and that's a tough thing to do without that strong powerful connection to spirit yes. and um, I believe that we could do that through through psilocybin therapy there's no question in my mind from what I've seen who I've talked to and a lot of the research that's out there couldn't agree with you more man thank you thank you so much for sharing that story um, that listening to someone like yourself as well that's gone through this at you know a younger age and with more years after it uh, is a lot of therapy for me as well so I just want to share that with you that listening to this and, and seeing the parallels of our experience um, super helpful so I really appreciate you sharing the story and there's so many of our listeners out there too that I'm sure have been through a similar experience uh, and I know that they always get a lot of, a lot of value out of this. So, um, it's important to keep sharing that story. And I know this is the first time that you've, you've really shared it on a, a platform like this outside of a blog. So is, yeah. thanks for your courage um, to, to share it as well. Well, you know what, Brett, I thank you to, for, for having, you know, using this, this technology to, um, to share all kinds of different stories and, you know, I think if, if you got something out of this today, that means a lot to me because, again, it's, uh, it's another step forward to, to bringing people together to understand that grief isn't something we deal with alone, that whether you're on the opposite side of the world to me, there's always a connection with things that we have in common, whether it's the death of a parent, the loss of a child, whatever. Um, we have to help and work with each other. So... Big, big kudos to you, my friend. Keep doing a great job, and thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. And um, just before we before we sign off here, um, I'm absolutely going to call the hospital where my mom was diagnosed. And, oh man, and I can't wait. Treatment days. Yeah, and I'd love to share those those notes with you as well, and and, and compare notes and just see and have another uh, another healing session with you, my man. That's uh, that's going to be yeah. That's uh, it's scary and exciting, and I'm. Uh, a little afraid of what I'll see, but I, one thing I've learned in, in years of, of therapy and work is that not knowing is so much more torture than yes. just like facing the difficult things. Right. So yeah. it's a, it's a, just to push through that and uh, knowing that you've done it and you've gone through it yeah. helps me to kind of to face that as well. Um, and, uh, is there anything you'd like to tell people about well, the work I, you're doing or what they can they can personally do in their own to, to help? Yeah, I think just continue to to communicate respectfully with your with parliamentarians. Um, just talk to them. If you see them out of the grocery store, you bump into them at an event, wherever, just, just talk to them, say, hey, are you aware of this? And most of them will say, I've heard about it, I've read something about it, but just have the conversation. If you have an experience of your own, continue to talk about it. Um, I will leave you this last thought too. Um, when you do get your mother's health records, um, you know it, it's it's a it'll be a very defining moment for you because I know now that as I look at them under the psychedelic lens, I'm, I know I'm looking for key words and a lot of the words I don't understand. I have a couple friends who are doctors, so I may have them translate it for me because I don't understand. I've been Googling a lot of the words, so I'm starting to put it together. But I'll tell you the one word that was consistent throughout all of those documents was anxiety. Mm. Mrs. Kidd didn't want to have her chest x-ray because she was too anxious. Missed appointment because of anxiety. Like, this is exactly why we need to have psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy to help people deal with these, these, these complex issues around death. So, so I, I welcome you know, your experience and I'm, I'm looking forward to you sharing that with, with everyone who's listening. So all the best to you, my friend. And people keep fighting, keep up the good work and um, don't turn into a hamster. <laughs>
That's all I ask. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much again, Michael. All right, man. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate all you guys being here on this educational journey with us all. Uh, if you want to continue your education around the art, science, and business of psychedelics, I highly recommend you sign up for our newsletter. Just go over to dailymushroom.co, pop in your email, and every Friday you'll get a newsletter straight to your inbox uh, that keeps you up to date on everything happening in the world of psychedelics. You can also follow us on Instagram at dailymushroom.co and TikTok at dailymushroom.co. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you on the other side.